level up your hunting game and join the cause. Help preserve small town Texas hunting culture and become a more successful hunter by learning the best ways to squeeze the most out of your budget and precious time out in the field. Welcome to the Feed Bandit Podcast. Here are your resident bandits, Richard Kinchlow and Jimmy Byrne. Howdy folks, Jimmy back with you for another edition of the Feed Bandit Podcast. Thanks again for uh, tuning in and uh, having a listen. We really appreciate it. Welcome to all the new listeners to the Feed Bandit Podcast. Uh, We hope you'll enjoy what we talk about here and uh, hope you stick around. Thanks to all the loyal listeners that have been with us uh, for quite a while. We really appreciate it. Uh, So what we wanted to do today was to continue our discussion that we had started a couple episodes back centered around uh, how we care for our venison. So here we are towards the end of October and with the regular rifle season, uh, really literally a couple days away here in Texas at least, uh, we thought it was uh, good to continue this discussion because we know a lot of you folks out there will be laying down some uh, some deer on the ground. And uh, let's talk about you know, how we can move forward caring for it so that when it hits our plate, it's in the best shape possible. So without further ado, I'm going to continue on uh, commenting on uh, the this book that we were going through, The Hunter's Haunch. Here we go. Hunting for food. Cooking with wild ingredients means always working with some degree of uncertainty. Some seasons, there's abundance. Others, there's scarcity. In the mid-20th century, American deer populations were low. Now, thanks to sustained conservation efforts, these populations are extremely high. And just a quick aside here, uh, that's really a lot of what we talk about here on on the podcast, where we talk about tips and tricks on how to help uh, the deer on your land and things that you can do to uh, not only help the deer on your land, but also help the folks out there that help that help you help the deer on your land, you know, feed stores and other small, smaller businesses uh, around the hunting space and those small towns around where your land is and whatnot. So we always encourage you guys out there to obviously uh, patronize them uh, whenever possible. So continuing. They are, in fact, so high that deer are becoming environmental nightmares, damaging forests and rupturing ecosystems. Interesting. Thus, organizations such as the Nature Conservancy permit deer hunting on its lands, arguing that it cannot allow a single species to become so out of balance with its historic natural numbers that many plants found on our lands, including rare and endangered ones, are threatened with their very existence. Unquote. Hunting is the traditional method to restore balance which includes consuming venison out of respect for the deer's wild existence. White-tailed deer are now in the city, in the country, in the streets, and in the suburbs. In some parts of the country, chiefly in the Northeast Corridor, deer are so plentiful they're viewed as furry locusts. Tame, they feast on forsythia and decorative trees, and they don't run away from cars. They do flee pet dogs, which in their minds likely trigger the same response as wolves, the dog's wild ancestor. Suburban deer are soft and plump. They are basically free-ranging, semi-domesticated deer, halfway between wild and farmed. It may seem like it's easy to throw a rock at one and drag it back into the kitchen, 
But like many things in modern life, it's not so simple. In the United States, hunting is open to everyone, but one, you have to have a hunting license, and two, there are laws which vary per state. So I'll just take the side here and remind folks with hunting season come up, it never hurts to review your outdoor annual, uh, you know, reacquaint yourself with the, the rules and laws in your county, as many of the counties vary. So just take a minute to do that prior to heading out to the field, and don't forget your license, of course. Per season, a hunter gets one tag per wild animal. Across the spectrum of wildlife, the tagging system is consistent, with a number of tags allotted varying by species and by state, reflecting the population of indigenous wildlife. There are no gator tags distributed in Maine, for example, because Maine has no native wild alligators. Allotments also vary from year to year, depending on the health of the herd, such flock, or other statistics. In areas of the country where deer populations are heavy, such as New Jersey, hunters might be allotted several tags. In other states where deer populations are low, such as Vermont, hunters might only get one tag per season, or no tags at all. A tag sets the lim legal limit per hunter that season. Applying for and receiving a deer tag, which comes with a fee, is no guarantee that the hunter will ever see a buck that year. Some seasons, even experienced deer hunters might wind up with no venison in their freezer. But regardless of whether a hunter in the United States has filled one tag or ten, that venison can be consumed at home or given to friends, but may not be sold. By contrast, in the United States most of, and most of the world, it is legal to sell venison from deer raised on deer farms. Though farm deer are raised under human management, they are frequently and confusingly called wild venison on upscaled menus and packaging labels. In this country, there's an easy way to tell if your venison comes from a semi-domesticated deer that grew up with fences. If cash money bought it and there was a receipt, the venison came from a deer farm. This is also true of packaged venison carried by large chain stores in the United Kingdom such as Waitrose or Sainberries, where shoppers expect to find venison next to beef, chicken, and pork in the meat section. In order to make farm venison more consumer-friendly, the deer farm industry is striving to establish a rating system that helps ensure consistency. This kind of product conformity is very helpful to chefs because it means they will know what to expect. Industry standards mean that means that a venison steak purchased this week will be the same in taste, texture, and consistency as a venison steak purchased next week, next month, and next year. Standardization ensures predictability. What this boils down to is that the difference between wild versus farm venison is ultimately about a relationship. The first, wild, is a relationship between the hunter and the quarry. The second, farmed, is a relationship between the consumer and the meat. The hunter-quarry relationship conserves the possibility that the human may go hungry. The consumer-meat relationship takes the worry away and provides a money-back guarantee. This security not only turns the deer into a cow, it transforms the human into a shopper, a vehicle for making money move around quickly. We are all consumers now, but some consumers are also hunters. They would rather be consuming venison and not beef, and they would like that venison to be as delicious as possible. Why then do so many hunters end up with venison that's inedible? Uh, just a quick aside, that's a great question. Uh, 
I probably wouldn't consider myself to be in the in the camp of uh, you know always preferring venison instead of beef. I like both, uh, or I like pork as well. You know, that's another wild animal that we can shoot out there and the, out there in the in the in the bush. But uh, what's really good and one thing that we've talked about on the podcast in the past is combining them, you know, combining some of the venison that you get with some with beef or with pork or both to make your own grinds and kind of uh create and experiment with different grind recipes and get different grind ratios you know until you find the one that you like the most that's always fun it's always a good pastime always something fun to do with kids so uh keep that in back of your mind you know something that you could do uh in the future especially if you had some extra venison that you know, maybe you thought you wouldn't be able to eat over next year. Think, consider uh, making it into a grind of some sort or and go further into some sausage. So anyway, we'll continue here. The fat of the land. Over the course of the 20th century, one of the most profound dietary shifts in the United States has been the rejection of wild ingredients in favor of a near total dependency on factory farm foods. In fact, gaminess is becoming rare. Notes Mark Bittman, the owner of How to Cook Everything, in 2008, who adds, Starkly gamey flavors are hard to take for people who are not raised on them. Venison's rich concentration of flavors, which is not the same as being gamey, can shock contemporary palates habituated to sweet, bland food. In other words, it's possible that your hunted venison isn't bad. It just tastes too strong. In the same way that black coffee is too bitter for those who take it with cream and two sugars. According to Elizabeth II's personal chef, she dined on venison every night. Dines on venison every night, so, excuse me, suggesting that it's not just consumed when there's no better options around. Because game remains popular in Britain, where venison is still coded to economic and political power. It's worth bringing forward the fact that it used to be routinely served at the 19th century White House. One sample buffet menu for a thousand guests included cold game in season, game pig, and venison with currant jelly. Helpfully, the White House cookbook in 1887 provided extensive instructions regarding the correct method of presenting, slicing, and serving this haunch, including detailed diagrams. The haunch in question comes from a deer that must have been morbidly obese, but all the more desirable for that reason. A century ago, cooks knew that a superior haunch of venison began with the wild berries the doe had been feasting on all summer, for it infused the flesh with sweet, fruity notes, turning venison into the meat version of a fine wine and its tasting into a culinary ritual. The White House cookbook listed a few variables that affected the cooking process. Doe venison cooks up faster than buck venison. The finest meat comes from a young stag, followed by a doe. It's best to take a deer in autumn, because that's when they're most fat. Here's the trouble. I've never run into a deer so overweight that it waddled through the woods. If anything, the opposite tends to be true. Deer are flighty creatures that spend their lives running away from everything. All that running means that they tend to be exceptionally lean. There's very little subcutaneous fat, and certainly no marbling. Marbling refers to the intramuscular fat, or fat that runs throughout the muscle fibers, giving it a marbled appearance. Cuts that have the most marbling are the most desirable. 
as fat imparts flavor. By starting out fattier, a marbled cut tends to maintain tenderness while cooking. It's the fact that it doesn't dry out as easily that prompts cooks to associate marbling with tenderness. Crucially, marbling is genetic, not a function of overeating, and can vary greatly among breeds. Hence, Wagyu cows, which make Kobe, which make Kobe beef, are prized for the exceptionally concentrated marbling of their meat and the nutritional value of their fat. By contrast, lifelong overeating resulting in obesity produces layers of fat beneath the skin, subcutaneous or fluffy fat, and around the organs, hard fat or suet. The bottom line is that fat isn't just fat. It's a metabolic substance vital to good nutrition. Without it, we cannot assimilate certain vitamins. So it's added to a lot of packaged food, but largely missing from game. With the exception of wild mammals that hibernate, such as bears, dormice, and groundhogs, or those that live in exceptionally cold climates, such as polar bears and seals, a lack of subcutaneous fat characterizes wild animals in general. Wild pigs are dry compared to their domesticated counterparts. And wild rabbits are so lean that humans forced to survive on them will die of a form of malnutrition called rabbit starvation, the food equivalent of dying of thirst while gumping down gallons of salt water. Rabbit starvation has plagued early American colonists, who eventually figured out that they'd suffer badly and even died from malnutrition without a reliable source of animal fat to supplement their diet. Centuries later, scientists discovered the cause of the seeming par paradox of eating so much game meat that you starve to death. It's because rabbits, hares, and other members of the Leporidae family are nearly pure protein. Too much protein will, ov will overload the capacity of human kidneys and liver to process urea and amino acids. Sufferers quickly began to display the visible symptoms of food deprivation distended belly, diarrhea, constant hunger, and fatigue. Yet the immediate solution to rabbit starvation is also very simple. In Never Cry Wolf, wildlife biologist Farley Moat noted that his decision to survive in the wild by exclusively eating wild meat, in this case field mice, made him feel progressively worse until he figured out he had to eat the entire mouse, including guts, skin, and eyeballs thereby obtaining essential fatty acids and other nutrients absent from the muscle itself, but abundantly present in fat. If Mawat had consulted cookbooks written before 1900, he might have saved himself some trip, trips to the latrine. <laughs> cookbooks used to routinely recommend cracking bones for marrow and tenderly slicing up the brains. Classic recipes for hair nearly always included the kidneys, the heart, and the liver, all chopped up and served in a delightful blood sauce. Under ordinary circumstances, these innards are so tiny that it hardly seems worth the bother to saute them. The culinary tradition can seem baffling, but we now know that it reflected practical considerations that went far beyond Yankee frugality. The pinnacle of hot cuisine is still riz de vieux, calf sweetbreads, thymus, pancreas, and lymph nodes, and foie gras, Goose liver, for these organs, enjoy high concentrations of fat. It now seems obvious that these rich sauces weren't just for flavor. These recipes reflected years of collective experience regarding the particular quirks of cooking wild game, finding good taste to a healthy desire to not die. As a survivalist might say, 
or to live well, which is exactly the same idea expressed by a more optimistic personality. So just an aside here, this is this is very a very interesting part of the book. I only in the last probably two, maybe three years, have I actually started to eat more of the organs of the deer, uh, like the liver and especially the heart, uh, beyond just you know the standard uh, ham, shoulders, back straps, uh, loins, you know, tenderloins, etc. Um, and I and I will say that. Uh, if if you happen to be one of those folks out there that does the same and hasn't yet tried the uh, some of the some of the organs, especially the heart, as I say, uh, you're missing out. The heart, in my opinion, when cooked properly, which is not very hard at all, I, we actually have a uh, recipe at feedbandit.com about how to cook a heart heart or feedbandit.com/heart. Uh, go on there, check that out. It is my favorite cut of any deer. It's it is absolutely amazing. So next time you shoot a deer, uh, as long as you don't, you know, if you don't shoot the vitals and it doesn't destroy the heart, get in there. It's a little work, but get in there. Keep that heart. Check out that recipe. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Uh, I know it may seem kind of weird at first. Uh, even hell, a lot of my buddies are uh, kind of. I don't know if it's squeamish or they're afraid to try it. Uh, even uh, the corn bandit here, uh, he's finally agreed to try it when next time I cook it, but he, even he's a little squeamish on it. So, uh, but yeah, keep the heart for sure. Very good. Continuing from a culinary perspective, the value of fat cannot be overstated. Thus on the one hand, it makes sense that the white house cookbook recommended that venison be served on warm plates and the haunch kept in, chafing dishes in order to keep its fat loose and translucent. This advice is sound. As soon as venison starts to cool, it dries out and stiffens far more quickly than other red meats. On the other hand, it's mystifying that the White House's head chef found himself facing a haunch of venison so fatty that it was like mutton. The rind of a domestic sheep's hind leg can be several thumbs thick with fat. For this reason, a leg of lamb is lovely when roasted, yet hunter after hunter will attest that venison from a white-tailed deer has hardly any fat at all. Rabbit starvation isn't limited to rabbits, but extends to any diet that relies too exclusively on game as a staple. Unhelpfully, it is also the case that 20th century game cookbooks invariably instruct cooks to start by ruthlessly trimming their venison insisting that even the tiniest hint of external fat will impart an offensive flavor to the dish. So which is it? Is venison fat tasty or terrible? Is there a lot of it or hardly any? Perhaps 150 years ago, herds of deer were living off the cornucopia of the land and becoming roly-poly as a result. Have the tables since turned? And now we're the ones waddling through the woods, searching for a skinny deer for supper? So I puzzled, I researched, I cooked. And as I learned more about hunting and cooking wild animals, the answer became clear. The haunch of venison served at the White House was not from a wild deer. It almost certainly came from a semi-domesticated deer raised in a deer park. Up through the Industrial Revolution, wealthy nobles in Europe, the United Kingdom, and Asia kept private deer parks to supply their dinner tables. That arrangement appealed to parvenu Americans who emulated it. 
The outlines of deer parks can still be found in older residential communities in the United States, chiefly in New England, though they've fallen completely out of use for the purposes of keeping managed herds of deer. Its most recent permutation is the commercial deer farm, which is a similar operation with one major difference. It is not private, but tied to the demands of the marketplace. Globally speaking, the largest deer farms are located in New Zealand, which is also known for its sheep industry. Deer farms shield semi-domesticated deer from predators and often feed them with grain. The deer no longer need to forage for browse or fear getting run over by cars. They can become quite plump and their fat is mild and sweet because the sedentary lifestyle directly affects the flavor. Perhaps more importantly, however, these conditions guarantee a tasty hunch of venison by the end of the day. This predictability is desirable when serving a thousand important guests who are seated at a formal table and reading elegant menus printed with the words venison with currant jelly. But for many hunters, this guarantee means that the meat, this meat isn't venison. Philosophically speaking, it's beef. The animal may be a deer, but the human management of its daily routine has turned it into a cow. From the hunter's perspective, farm-raised deer and wild deer might as well be unrelated species. Same go in the kitchen, meaning that cooks must begin by knowing which kind of venison they're trimming. Why is farm venison so different from wild venison? Among other things, farm meat comes with a label. Wild meat doesn't. In the grocery store, cooks begin by deciding the protein they wish to serve for supper. That is, meat, fish, poultry, or soybeans, and then determine which cut, filet mignon, fish sticks, chicken breast, extra firm tofu, etc., they can afford. It's not, it's not the genus, but the price per pound that shapes cooking decisions. The antithesis of farm meat, wild venison, presents a challenge because consumers aren't used to thinking about the biography of their food. When meat is farmed, pre-slaughtered, pre-butchered, and sold pre-wrapped, it is cut off from its personal history as an individual animal, as well as its inherited legacy as a member of a group that has lived with humans for centuries. Whether livestock or pet, all domesticated animals, vegetables, grains, fruits, etc., have been profoundly manipulated to serve human needs. Consider the chicken, Gallus gallus domesticus, a domesticated creature that comes in an astonishing variety of breeds. Humans eat a lot of these birds. According to the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, in 2009, the world consumed approximately 92.9 million ton, tons of poultry. The chicken is expected to cook, cook up a certain way. It can be fried, grilled, boiled, roasted, sautéed, shredded, breaded, shaped into fingers and nuggets. What this versatility mostly reveals is that the chicken has been bred to be foolproof. The perfect recipe for roast chicken is by chef Thomas Keller, who acquires one farm-raised chicken, a bit of butter, and a dash of Dijon mustard if you like. The genius of this recipe resides in the instructions that follow, rinse the chicken, then dry it very well with paper towels inside and out. No basting, no fussing, while it roasts serenely for 50 or 60 minutes. Then take it out and let it rest for 15 minutes before carving. Dry high heat plus internal fat equal the perfect roast chicken. The recipe works because certain realities about chicken, the chicken, are baked into the bird. There are layer hens for eggs, roosters for breeding, and fancy chickens kept as pets. 
but the kind that gets fried as a broiler chicken, bred for millennia to be docile and delicious. The fact that your particular hen might be farm-raised and eating bugs, worms, and seeds, as it ranges over grassy fields, doesn't fundamentally alter approximately 8,000 years of selective breeding for two specific qualities. To appeal to the human palate and to reach maturity quickly. Domesticated chickens are plump with fat. Even the skinny specimens are several orders of magnitude fattier than that, than that wild progenitor of domesticated chickens, the red jungle fowl, Gallus gallus. Some domesticated chickens are so free-ranging that they've gone completely feral, but the most complicated chicken recipes in the world won't produce a delicious roast if the chicken started out wild. Try using Keller's recipe on a red jungle fowl that's been raised on an American farm, technically making it a farm-raised chicken, and the result will be an inedible football. Many steps went into shaping the chicken bird before it became chicken meat, and just as many steps will affect the deer before it becomes venison. But as long as the animal is wild, its meat will be too. How it lived and how it died affects the taste and texture of the venison. A bad hunter makes bad venison, no matter how pampered the deer. But a good hunter can end up with terrible venison, too, if the winter's been hard that year. For these reasons and more, wild meat is more complex than meat bought at the store, where every inch of the animal's life and death has been under human control. The absence of that control changes everything, including the way the cook must approach the task at hand. All right, folks, that's very interesting. A little hit, little more history, a little more different way to kind of think about uh, how our meat gets to the table, how the meat that we buy from the store differs from the venison that we work so hard to harvest out in the field. So listen to that thing. I may listen to that again or re-listen to this podcast again to kind of get a little better idea on the general principles that we're going to kind of dive into as we get further along into into this uh, into this book and consider some of the uh, things that they bring up. But with that, I, again, I just wanted to thank uh, all the new listeners who've joined the Feed Bandit podcast. Thanks for joining on, and please, uh, please, you know, bookmark this podcast, save it to your uh, favorites in your podcast player. If you like it, please forward it on to your hunting buddies. Give them something else to listen to. Uh, we we always like to say, hey, or ask folks to listen to us on the way back to their land or on their way back home, you know, or during the week on their drive to work. You know, as just a little way to kind of take your mind away from the daily grind. We hope we're bringing some entertainment that way. Uh, thanks to our existing listeners, our long-term listeners. We really appreciate it. And uh, if you're so inclined, anyone out there, please give us a rating and review on your favorite favorite podcast app. That would really help, along with sending it along to your hunting buddies. So with that, uh, uh, opening of rifle season coming up. We hope everyone's getting really excited and prepared to get out there. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about deer hunting the rest of the year. So stick around. We got uh, a lot more good stuff coming up, coming down the pike. So we're excited to stick with you. Uh, with that, we will, I'll let you go, and y'all have a good one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Feed Bandit Podcast. 
If you like what we discuss on the show, be sure to sign up to our email list to get even more killer hunting ideas, tips, tricks, and exclusive deals on innovative hunting gear and services delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up over at FeedBandit.com or simply by texting the word BANDIT to 33777. See you on the next one. And remember, support your local feed store.